Okay, so I've never been to a Disney park. My parents weren't into the idea of bringing all three kids to Disney. And as an adult, it's just never been on my radar to go. But as I'm sure you know, uh, Disney is immensely popular. And I have to admit, I've always been fascinated by it. Not Disney, but the people who love Disney. I've always wondered what they love about it so much and why people obsessively go back. Welcome back to Alpaca My Bags. I'm your host, Erin. Today I'm joined by Senna. Hi, Senna. Hello. She's a dear friend, and we frequently travel together, and you might recognize her from our first ever episode, which was about Cambodia. We talked about the strange popular shooting ranges there. (laughs) That was actually our first episode ever, and I'm really excited to have you back on. Thanks. You're our first repeat guest. (laughs) I'm honored. When we were in grad school, Senna gave an amazing presentation about Disney and hyper-reality. So she's going to delve into that topic with us. I didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> so Erin, what's going on this week? <laughs> a lot. Um, I started a new job this week, which is pretty sweet. I'm loving it. Yay. But bigger things are going on. So I had heard that Aladdin was being made into a live action movie. And... I'm, I just said it. I'm not actually a big Disney fan, but on Sunday, I was just like on the couch and I was like, oh, I'll Google it, like see what the trailer is like. It looks amazing. <laughs> I was like, I have to see this. Can we go? Dude, I watched the trailer and I did not like it. <laughs> Me neither. Did you see Will Smith? He looks so weird. It looks so fun. It looks so cheesy. <laughs> You guys are reacting the same way Lucas did. He was like, no, you can go with someone else. You can go, yeah, maybe on your own. <laughs> Will you see Lion King with me? Yeah, Lion King looks way better. <laughs> it just looks the same as the original. Yeah, that's what I love about it. It's like nostalgically rememberable. But with Beyonce? Yeah. <laughs> There's like, I actually was thinking about this. I think that the fact that it looks like the exact same movie is what is attracting me to it so much. They know what they're doing. It's the same movie, but not. But yes, it is. Same, same, but not. (laughs) I don't know. They know exactly what they're doing. They're like capturing all us millennials who just like want to have a reason to see the same movie again. (laughs) And it worked. Not on me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so like I said, Senna and I went to grad school together. We were both in the Cinema and Media Studies Master's program, which sounds really funny to say after I just admitted I really want to see the two terrible movies. (laughs) I promise you I know a lot about cinema. (laughs) In fact, I have a master's degree in it. (laughs) You're a master. I'm a master. It was a cool program because it was very interdisciplinary. So you could write about film. But you could also write about related topics. So, for example, I researched the way that people on the internet talk about movies, like in forums. Um, And I also wrote a paper about the Bachelor franchise. More insight into my taste in pop culture. (laughs) Your highbrow taste. And this is not the first time I've mentioned The Bachelor on this podcast. It's terrible. Um, Senna, what topics did you research and write about? I loved your Bachelor paper, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my thesis is mostly about sexy robots in movies, um, so kind of like how gendered 
robot design always sexualizes female robots. Um, but then I also, in this class we took, I got to write about Disney parks, which was really fun because it was an opportunity to kind of take a break from the thesis that we were writing at the time. There's actually, even I, as someone who's never been to Disney, can like grasp how there's something cinematic about the experience of Disney. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're going to talk about more in depth. Um, so let's talk Disney basics. So Disneyland was the first park. It opened on July 17, 1955 in Anaheim, California. It is the only theme park that was designed and built under the direct supervision of the actual Walt Disney. Um, and it was originally the only attraction on the property. Its official name was changed to Disneyland Park to distinguish it from the expanding complex in the 1990s. So the original park has since expanded continuously. As of uh, 2017, it has over 700 million visits, which is wild. Nowadays, there's a Disneyland and a Disney World in the U.S., uh, Disneyland Paris, Tokyo Disney, Shanghai Disney, and Hong Kong Disney. How come there's no Disney in South America? Oh, yeah. True. They actually have not tapped into a lot of continents, I'm mm-hmm. realizing. Um, so your presentation, which was based off a paper that you wrote, looked at the construction and the ideologies behind the hyper-reality that's present in Disney parks and the influence and the impact of the theme park as a form that is trickled into everyday spaces. Oof, okay, that's a mouthful of big words. Let's break this down. Can you explain for us what hyper-reality is? So hyperreality is this fancy word coined by Jean Baudrillard as a, quote, real without origin or reality. I kind of like to describe it as that kind of nuanced gray space between the real and the imaginary. Um, Hyperreality is often linked to consumerism because it relies on advertising and like sign exchange, participation and immersion in order to flourish. Um, so Jean Baudrillard actually mentioned Disneyland as a really good example of a hyperreality that we literally buy into. Um, it's because that the illusion of Disney makes it more desirable than the reality outside of the park. And Walt Disney even has this quote that I, from the man himself, <laughs> that I thought really um, kind of encapsulates this, which is, I don't want the public to see the real world they live in while they're in the park. I want them to feel they are in another world. Wow. He knew what was up. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> also, the way you pronounced Baudrillard was really great. I had to make my French immersion t-shirts <laughs> happy. <laughs> so now that we know what hyperrealism is, we get to dig into the fun part, which is learning how Disney creates it. Um, I remember hearing your presentation and my mind was literally blown by the conscious tactics that Disney uses in this park. I like couldn't believe any of it. So tell us about it. What does Disney do? All right. So <laughs> before I start, though, I did want to say that I know there are a lot of hardcore Disney fans in the world and also a lot of haters who think that it's super weird when adults love Disney. And I wanted to clarify that I understand both sides, but I'm neither of both sides. <laughs> um, I feel like I have a weird relationship with Disney where I grew up on a lot of big Disney movies like Lion King and Aladdin that everybody... I'm sure uh, many people have grown up on, Uh, but my parents actually made a point not to push the Disney princess movies on my sisters and me um, because they were very sexist and traditional. um, And I feel like that made me have an aversion to parts of Disney since the princesses are such a huge part. Like we were talking earlier about how Cinderella's castle is literally like the focal point 
of the Disney logo and the park. Yeah. Um, so it actually wasn't really until Mulan came out that I became really obsessed with the Disney movie. And that was because it finally was a movie starring a character that I thought kind of looked like me. I'm Chinese. And so I, that was like the first time I really was like, oh, okay, I can see how if you grew up as a white person or like a little white girl, how then seeing all these princesses would get you like really into Disney. Um, So that was kind of like my intro to then kind of understanding why people would love Disney so much. It's funny to say that because I also don't feel like I was overly exposed. I actually just didn't grow up watching a lot of movies, really. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were like yours, like very conscious of what they showed us. And I think that's why I never developed like this fascination with Disney. Because I like Disney movies. I just don't have like an obsessive compulsion towards them. And I feel like that makes us feel more like outsiders looking into the Disney phenomenon, which I think is cool, though, because it lets us Mm. kind of step back and, yeah, kind of look into the culture and, like, the fandom of it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I went to Disneyland in California when I was 11 with my family, and then I went to Disney World in Florida when I was 17, and it was, like, my high school grad trip while the other cool kids were going to Punta Cana. (laughs) I decided to go with my two friends to Disney World. Um, I should mention, because... Uh, this is linked to what we're going to talk about. I think Disney World was literally the only place that my strict traditional Asian parents... Okay, they aren't that traditional, but my strict parents would let me go to on my own. Like, we were 17 at the time. And I think Disney World was, like, the only place that they would let me go because it was safe and clean and, you know, intended, right, kind of for kids. Um, yeah. And I feel like this is really key to the kind of, again, like, the hyper-reality that the parks create. Um And I feel like it does succeed in getting that kind of delicate balancing act between being both reality and illusion. Like, you know that it's an escapist getaway, but then you also participate in it. And so I feel like if it was too much of, like, the illusion, it would feel very corny and, like, shticky. But it actually doesn't. Like, I remember being quite surprised. Like, I'm a bit cynical. But I remember when I got there, I actually was like, oh, this place is pretty magical. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it is. it does achieve that balance between, like, you know you're buying into it and you kind of like it. <laughs> um, and I was yeah. pretty impressed. And I think that um, a lot of it's, like, architecture and the attractions themselves, like, really are part of that. It's funny you say that because actually in the podcast we recorded – last week or the week before Jessica told us about because we mentioned that we were going to be doing this episode and she was like oh yeah like I love Disney she loves it and I was asking her about this and she was like oh yeah like the whole time I'm there I'm there like I know I'm buying into it she was like I find myself talking to like Belle the princess and being like I'm a grown adult like why am I talking to you like you're an actual princess but you can't help yourself because it's just like this extreme fantasy yeah it's like this really surreal collective dream because everybody's in on it like everybody around you whether they're staff or like other guests at the park like everyone's in on it so it's just this very like shared experience of like very pure happiness it's almost disturbing (laughs) what would happen if you were to go in and just refused to comply like what if I went in and every character that I came across I just looked at the character and was like you're not real tell me your real name I feel like they must have some sort of training in place for the Debbie Downers (laughs) like you no (laughs) I am curious if I did go back now as an adult um if I would feel like that (laughs) because I am a bit more cynical about the parks now and I don't think I would go back now um, you should ask yeah. your parents what they yeah. thought. Actually, that's a good point. Except I know that they're with their kids, though, so maybe they were very, like, 
Well, they were probably pay- playing along for you, but maybe they, like, after you guys went to bed, were, like, complaining to each other, like, oh, I can't believe we have to do this. <laughs> Who knows? You should ask them. I should ask them. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I was kind of thinking about how, yeah, so it's kind of like this weird collective dream that everybody is in and that we are aware, like, we are aware we're dreaming when we're in Disney. Um, but I really liked this quote um, by J.P. Tellot that says that, it actually isn't, like, Disney isn't aiming to fool or trick us, but it's rather, quote, like, winking at us, and it's getting us to acknowledge that we're actually very complicit in this in this dream and in this mediated world. Um, and I actually, I think it's very similar to watching a movie. It's kind of like this temporary space where we can feel comfortable feeling scared and excited and confused or like a kid again. And, yeah, so I think that there are some, like, cinematic parallels between yeah, between the parks and, and movies and going to the movies. Yeah. So how does Disney go about creating this fantasy land? Like, what are the tactics that maybe you don't know are happening while you're there that are in place to keep up the fantasy and the dream? So definitely what separates Disney parks from just other parks, right? Like Wonderland um, in Toronto or just any other amusement park is that they're themed after the Disney movies and the characters that we've grown up with. So they're narrative-based, and they rely heavily on this kind of, again, collective popular memory and nostalgia and love, right, that we have for these characters from our childhood. Um, so Disney's Disney designers are called Imagineers in Disney language, <laughs> which we could talk more about later, but I think is hilarious and great. So Imagineers, um, like, Disney actually didn't employ just, like, regular architects, um, which I actually think was very smart. Like, he employed art directors and animators and film studio workers, which also, I feel, explains the kind of cinematic look of the whole park. Um, so they actually, in some parts of the park, they actually used forced, uh, like forced perspective to make the building seem larger and make you feel smaller and like a kid. So I remember feeling that way on Main Street, which is like where you arrive right after, you know, getting your ticket ripped. Um, and then you can see <laughs> Cinderella's castle. Um, but there is that kind of feeling of like the buildings are bigger than you and you feel like you're in you feel like you're in a movie, you feel like you're in like a play, (laughs) a play space. Um, So another thing that Disney does very well is that they separate the parks into different themes. So there's Main Street, which I just mentioned, but there's also Frontierland, Adventureland, Tomorrowland, and Fantasyland. Um, So those are some of the main lands. I think that they do, they are different depending on which one you're at. But all of these kind of have the shared philosophy of like, nostalgia and optimism and I would argue very colonial ideas of like America being like the epitome of innovation um, (laughs) because technology is like very important or was very important to Walt (laughs) my good friend Walt um, and kind of positing America as like kind of America versus the world as like America being the main point of innovation and technology and the world being exotic and mysterious Um, and so I feel like this is very deliberate. Um, it's not as obvious until you read I, the plaques um, that kind of welcome you into each park. Um, have a lot of language that you could really unpack. A lot of mm-hmm. discovering the rest of the world, and and again, like celebrating America's discoveries <laughs> and innovations. Um, Given the context of like the 1950s when the first park was opened, and like his films were still portraying these very problematic views. It kind of makes sense that that particular park has this sort of like colonial overtone to Mm -hmm, it. For sure. And yeah, no, I know what you mean. There's also a really weird part 
of the park that I remember going to called the Hall of Presidents, and it's full of animatronics of America's presidents. And it's just a really weird... I mean, luckily we went before Trump, but it was just... Super weird still, and there's just, like, talking Lincolns and, like, I mean, not multiple ones, but it's just, it was really weird. And I remember just being like, why is this part of Disney? Like, why is this in a children's park? (laughs) Aside from all of these weird colonial, you know, themes and everything, um, Disney does do a really good job, though, at keeping the hyper real experience going like something I found that um when my friends and I went when we were uh, 17 is that like the moment we stepped off the plane in Orlando we were guided into a Disney shuttle bus like it had Mickey Mouse all over it transported to our Disney resort and then we when we unpacked our bags in our Disney room like the TV only had Disney <laughs> like it was very surreal I mean I'm sure there were other channels but I actually don't remember any other channels except Disney like it was like oh old Disney cartoons or Disney Channel or just like footage of the park so it was very controlled like it's so tightly controlled and then so the moment you step off the plane to when you're in your hotel to when you leave the park or leave to go out to the park and then I noticed even that when you went to the bathrooms in the park that the bathroom still matched the aesthetic of the park we are currently in. So if we were in Adventureland, the bathroom still looked like you're in the jungle. <laughs> so it's very, like the continuity of like the narrative and the hyper-reality was just, it was ever flowing. And I feel like that, again, is very deliberate and it's very, it's very intentional decision that is made through like the aesthetics and the architecture of the park. It sounds like a cult. <laughs> it does. Cause you basically, I mean, I describe it as it's not a day trip. Like it's, like it spills into your night, like you're just surrounded by it. You're just dreaming for the entire time. It's, I mean, some people love it, but it is very unsettling if you think about it too long. Is there alcohol there? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Instantly. Yes. I love how Katie. I mean, knows. I was not. I couldn't drink back then, but there was like a nightlife area. No. Yeah. <laughs> With like movie. Th- I saw. I remember seeing movies in Disney. Like that's so pointless. Anyway. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. There's kind of something for everything. Okay. I remember you talking to us in the presentation about Disney language being a thing. Yeah. So even the language used in the parks is kind of like the sneaky tool that I feel transports you and also the staff into just thinking and seeing and doing different things (laughs) that you wouldn't normally do. Um, So the everyday term would be like customer, but then the Disney term is guest. And so here are a few others. So we would normally say employee or staff, but Disney says cast member. And then we would normally mm. say public area, but Disney says on stage. And same for restricted area is backstage. And I feel like, well, you we can talk more about this later, but these really play into the idea of Disneyland and Disney World as like a stage, like parks as a stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a few other funny ones. Um, instead of accidents, they call them incidents. And I can confirm this because I remember before my trip, to Disney, I was, I guess I was just being very dark. I was an emo child, so I searched, <laughs> I searched like major accidents in Disney parks. But even the Wikipedia article is called Incidents in Disney Parks. So it's like so tightly controlled. Um, That's so funny because I Googled it too. I was like, I need to know what shit has gone down at Disney. It's dark, it's creepy. <laughs> yeah. It just taught me that I should like cut off all my hair. I'm so scared of my hair getting stuck in there. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I feel like this language that really emphasizes the idea of the park 
again, as a stage. Um, also, I should mention that instead of saying uniform, they also say costume. Um, but it also really softens like negative ideas. So even um, like even a crowd is called an audience. <laughs> and I think like even a queue, like they have another pleasant word for queue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I just feel like all these other yeah, that the language is very, like, intentionally positive. Um, and that you just, again, like, don't even realize the subtle ways that it changes how you approach the rest of the park experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that it's kind of... My, like, my issue with it, too, though, is that it, it kind of is reminiscent of that kind of strong corporate culture interested in controlling, like, every aspect of their employees. So I, I feel like that is kind of linked to giving them scripts which we can talk more about later but like employees mm-hmm. have to adhere to like a script um and this la- disney language is a part of it mm-hmm. um yeah so i feel like that's something and, we can chat about more. yeah we, we'll delve into it more because i am really interested in talking about like the treatment of staff especially within the park and outside of the park but to continue with how they create hyper realism what about machines yeah, so I feel like this weirdly is linked to how we were just talking about staff. <laughs> um, so it's almost like the staff, like our machines, like they, as I mentioned, they have to subscribe to a script um, and to specific language. Um, so I was kind of noticing when I was researching for my paper how humans have become machine-like and then machines have actually become human-like. Um, so Disney's audio animatronics are actually a trademarked form of like robotics and animation. Um but unlike androids who, right, like androids are supposed to adapt to their surroundings, right? They're supposed to seem so realistic because they're responding to you no matter what you do. But Disney's animatronics are limited to their performances because it's all pre-recorded. So there's no room for unpredictability. Oh. Yeah, so I feel like, and this is also in, um, I think it's Adventureland, which has like animatronic animals. There's actually not even any live animals maybe that's different now but when I went there were no live animals um during any of the shows or rides which I feel like is another way of kind of avoiding that uncomfortable you know uncontrollable unpredictability that Disney seems to really want to avoid like again it's so highly controlled right Um, how real are the animatronics like from your perspective if I was an adult would I be tricked by one to believe it was real no so they're super creepy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think they're so uncanny. <laughs> like, animatronics. Can you explain what the uncanny valley is? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone so, should know this. So the uncanny valley, I think, is coined by Freud because Freud does everything, I guess. It doesn't. I, I'm sure <laughs> when you don't know, just say coined by Freud. Yeah, coined by Freud. Um, so uncanny was coined by Freud, but the uncanny valley is this concept uh, coined by this robotics professor, a professor named Masahiro Mori. Um, So it's kind of this chart that is kind of charts our sense of familiarity and friendliness towards human-like objects or robots, right, in this case. And the chart kind of posits that we eventually get super creeped out if something is too human-like. Like, it it actually has to exist in between this very careful, like, balanced, (laughs) you know, dip in the graph where we are you know, respond well to a human-like object. But it's very hard. And I feel like almost, yeah, the more people try, and I feel like this happens a lot in CGI too, right? Where Mm -hmm. you're like, whoa, this is actually too much. But for example, um, 
maybe other examples like The Sims, right? We kind of know they aren't that realistic, so we don't care. Like, so then we just accept it and we know that they're supposed to be humans. Yeah. So it's kind of like this, again, like sweet spot. <laughs> um, and yeah, Disney's animatronics. It's so interesting care. because like, it's so delicate that if it's too human, it makes us uncomfortable to think that something is human when it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's like gets more disturbing than friendly. Like, oh, I can chat with this. It's like, oh no, I don't even want to look at this. <laughs> And I argue that the human animatronics in Disney are like that. They're super weird. Um, Yeah. So I feel like, I mean, some people think that, um, I remember while researching that um, some people thought that Disney liked animatronics because there was an animator strike in 1941. So some people thought that Disney didn't like working with real workers. Um, And there's this quote by... um, a Disney Imagineer named Bill Justice that I think is very upsetting, but um, but also very telling, where he said, quote, These animatronic figures perform the same way every time. They're reliable, they don't belong to unions, and they don't go on strike, and they don't want more money. So I, and that's like coming from an Imagineer, so I feel like that was pretty telling. So... In order to actually enjoy the park, you kind of have to agree to immerse yourself into its illusion and like the hyper reality. The like, I think they like to call it magic. (laughs) Believe in the magic. (laughs) But let's get to like the fun stuff because I love debating things. So now we get to debate stuff because there's a lot of ethics and controversy that we can talk about that relates to the park. Um... And you definitely know a lot about this, so tell us. Yeah, so I feel like, I mean, the number one thing would just be that Disney is pure, just American capitalism and consumerism. Um, And I feel like that is kind of inevitable being an amusement park, right? So um, that's definitely part of it. Um, But I would say that it is ironic how the happiest place on earth costs a lot of money (laughs) and earns a lot of money, but then how that also really conflicts with reality. Um, I was mentioning to you earlier how um, I read like a 2018 report that said that three quarters of American Disney Park employees were actually being paid so poorly that they couldn't afford basic living expenses and sometimes even experiencing homelessness. So I feel like this is a really, you know, dark and ugly side to Disney that of course they try to cover up. Um, And I feel like even I've even mentioned like this fact to my friends who like are Disney Disney obsessed and they even like get really weird about it they're like oh that's awful Mm. but like and they almost don't even know what to say it's so it almost contributes to the fact that again like Disney um like Disney attendees really just are like no 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 like don't don't ruin this you know because it disrupts the illusion yeah like the dream (laughs) and I think that that only came out because and you mentioned this to me earlier last year it hit the news that one of these homeless Disney workers had died alone in their car that they were living in, in a parking lot. And I think this really points to a a separation in the type of workers that you find in Disney because it was very shocking for me to learn that. The only people I knew who had worked at Disney were Canadian expats who go, they they apply to work there for a summer and it's like the best summer of their lives. So there's there's this weird disparity between like people who get to go for one summer and it's like the dream trip and dream work experience versus like the blue collar workers that are brought in that live on the like outskirts of the park um, and they're brought in to do like the difficult work. Yeah, I feel like 
I had also only ever heard good things, right? That like, oh, and like all the employees smile at me, you know, while I'm there. So they must be happy. They have to. But also like I just realized those people, like the young people that go and work for the summer, they're almost part of the machine that is Disney because they come back and tell everyone how incredible their experience was working there and like the dream that it was to work there. So they're almost like a piece of the puzzle in that sense. Mm -hmm. Another cog in the Disney machine. (laughs) Tell us about Epcot. Ah, yes. I have so many Epcot feelings. (laughs) So, so when I went, yeah, again, on my, on my cool grad trip, um, one of the parks that really stood out to me in a super weird way was Epcot. Um, so it's in Disney World and it's short for, get this, Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. What? (laughs) Which is nuts. (laughs) What does that even mean? So... So I should mention that Disney has, like, a lot of roots um, in, like, world fairs. Um, And, like, Disney presented a lot of... um, It was, like, sponsored by, like, you know, Coke and, like, maybe not Pepsi, but Coke and other, you know, big corporations and presented at, I think it was a Chicago World Fair. Um, So Epcot is kind of like a permanent World's Fair where it's, like, separated into pavilions. Like, each country has its own pavilion. Oh, no. Um, So I see it as, like, this really weird... It's, like, a shopping mall, but based on country. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, it's just a really weird marketplace. And it's divided into two parts called the World Showcase and then the Future World. Um, And so the World Showcase, yeah, as I mentioned, is made up of those pavilions and... It's kind of weird. Like, it's kind of like Vegas, though. So we can talk about that, where, um, like, there are replicas of the Eiffel Tower um, and, like, other landmarks. Um, And then there's just... It's all gift shops. Like, it's all gift shops and restaurants. And, again, we're audio-animatronic shows. (laughs) Um, And it really just kind of reduces each country to, like, kind of its main architecture that you would kind of associate with that country. Um, And I would argue some simple stereotypes. Like, it kind of reminded me a lot of... um, like a Disney, the Disney ride, it's a small world, which also really reduces, you know, the whole world to just like costumes and yeah, it's just Is a that, very... You're just going around the world? Yeah, so it's a small world. Oh God, it's a small world. We'll show you a video. Yeah. I'm so scared. It's a what small do they world. do to Canadians in it? Actually, nothing. What do they do to us? I think we get like a Mountie. Tiny little puppets singing It's a Small World. You go on a boat. Okay, here. Actually, this is kind of a funny story. So we had tricked. It was me and my best friend, Sarah, and our friend, Caleb. (laughs) And we, Sarah and I really wanted to go to It's a Small World because we're really annoying and we love (laughs) bothering Caleb and like singing in an annoying high-pitched voice. And It's a Small World literally plays the It's a Small World song the entire time while you sit in a little boat and just float through the world. And so we decided that we wanted to go, but we knew that Caleb would never want to go with us. So we lied to Caleb and we were waiting in line and we were like, this ride is so cool and it's so exciting. And he didn't know. And so he was like, oh, and we were like, yeah, it's one of the best, like most exciting rides in the whole park. And then we were waiting in line and Caleb was like, there's so many little kids. And we were like, yeah, they're really brave. And then finally we get in like the floaty boat and Caleb is like, what the hell is this? <laughs> How the long song, is the ride? It's so long. It's so slow because you're in a boat just floating, looking at puppets. <laughs> it's terrible. Hold on, hold on. Is this the song? Yep. Picture this forever. No. 
This is so scary. I'm scared. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm gonna call. You can't get out. You're in a boat. You have to listen to this the is whole time. Is it real water? Yep. Do you think people ever try to escape? <laughs> I mean, it's very shallow water. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, also something very unsettling about both It's a Small World and, like, this Epcot World Pavilion <laughs> is that both of them really have this, like, almost conflicting... Like, it's too, like, it's like a paradox. So one idea is that, oh, world peace. Like, we're all the same. We're all connected. But then the other idea is also, oh, but also look at how exotic all of these countries are. (laughs) So it's like this really weird, like, contradiction. Huh. And it's very unsettling. (laughs) But, but yeah, I don't know. I, like, I found it very odd that, like, in the Japan pavilion, like, literally just had Japanese chefs making sushi. And, like, yes, that's part of Japan. And Actual Japanese people? Yeah, like, they they looked Japanese. <laughs> but, like, it really was just, like, oh, okay, like, I guess you must hire based on race for these pavilions. Oh <laughs> but who knows? Like, I don't know. It really, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It made me feel yeah. a bit strange. And Apparently that's what they do with the people who come from Canada. Mm. They put you in the Canadian summer. pavilion? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. It just... It was weird. I remember, like, and I hadn't gone to London um, at the time, and I just remember going to the London Pavilion and being like, great, now I can get a Beatles cup for my sister. Like, it was just, like, I remember thinking it was cool, at, like, kind of cool at the time. I like, oh, cool, like, I, I can go around the world. <laughs> and I feel like, actually, this is where I wanted to kind of link it to Vegas, because I know that you and I kind of found it interesting that, like, the Vegas Strip has, you know, the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty, and it is this weirdly accessible way of maybe seeing these landmarks but then it also I mean isn't that accessible Disney's expensive but it is kind of I don't know I'm a bit I've mixed feelings about it because I could see how if you can't afford obviously to travel all around the world that this is a very you know even though it's very essentialist and stereotypical but it is you know, but a but a taste mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. of parts of the world. People might disagree with this. You might have to take this out. I don't know how controversial this is to say, but it kind of fits into this narrative that I see in America that like there's no need to leave America. America has everything. Mm. Why travel to Paris if like you can go to Vegas and see the per- Eiffel Tower there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd even think of it like that. Yeah. I mean, because also again, like Disney still positions itself as like oh look at all these other countries but then the rest of the park is like and america <laughs> like like the main the, the like main street is literally called i think main street usa <laughs> so oh, yeah it's yeah. feeding into like the ideology of patriotism mm-hmm. and america. like that's still at the center of the parks yeah um but yeah i just feel like so that's like a big part like a kind of big bone to pick i have with disney is just um yeah, just kind of how it positions itself, you know, as very American um, and just it really is America versus everybody. And how I remember the description, I think, for Adventureland, again, just kind of has like experienced the jungles of Asia and Africa. And I'm like, that's a lot. Like, that's two whole continents. They're just jungles. Like, yeah. That's and, it. and it's just like, again, like very exciting and mysterious. And I'm like, well, that's OK. <laughs> again, like it really just veils just very consumerist and capitalist ideas under this kind of like, oh, but it's okay because it's fun and it's, you know, and it's leisure and it's nostalgic and, oh, remember this from our childhood? But it's just, I think it's very sneaky. (laughs) Um, I don't think that it's intentionally, you know, dark or sneaky. I don't think 
that it's like evil <laughs> but i do think that it is part of it though is yeah oh something i do want to say is kind of looking back on it like i remember feeling really special while i was there like i do remember being like wow like all the employees are in such good moods <laughs> or sorry all the all the cast members are in such good moods and everyone's so happy and, you know, I feel so safe and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I just kind of, I do think looking back on it, it's kind of ironic that, like, I felt so special, but everyone feels special going to Disney. And you had even asked me if I had any, you know, funny or special stories to tell. And I actually don't have any. And I feel like it is because Disney intentionally wants to create this, like, monolithic, experience of the parks like it's the same for everybody like everybody Mm -hmm. just has a good time but then you almost don't know what you did like I know I went on rides I know I liked I liked them but it's like almost a blur and I don't have that feeling about other places I've been to as a kid right like I have very specific memories of other places but Disney is just this kind of happy blur which is fine but I think says a lot about it as an experience like I think that's what makes me uncomfortable is it like kind of suggests that you have to like give in to this complete fantasy and buy your way into this park to experience like true and un like non-challenged happiness Mm -hmm. whereas I feel that I have so many beautifully happy memories like not only just as a child but like as an adult that maybe weren't like pure perfect happiness but they were so meaningful because like it kind of ties into the old age-old concept that like you can't really experience happiness unless you experience sadness and it's almost like too much happiness there that you're saying like it it all melds together it's like okay what is a happy experience if literally the entire day is perfect and happy yeah oh my god that's exactly it like if happiness is the norm it actually becomes you know just what is it bland (laughs) um and like I always think about actually I remember ending my paper with this quote and being like mic drop but um but it actually (laughs) reminds me of this quote from The Incredibles which is a Disney movie but there's a part where the mom tells her son like oh like everybody is special like don't worry you know everyone's special and then her son says that's another way of saying no one is and I was like that's Disney yeah (laughs) like again everyone's treated like royalty there but that means no one is because everyone's treated exactly the same and it's great but Yeah, it just kind of, it does feel less authentic now that I'm older. I do wonder if I went back, if I would still be like captured by its spell. Because we know a lot of people who, yeah, are grown adults who are still, Mm -hmm. you know, completely enraptured by it. And I I do understand why, right? Like, because if you do buy into it, it's completely enthralling, right? To relive your childhood. And I feel like as we get older, there is an instinct to relive our childhood like with Lion King. (laughs) So, okay, this, this brings up like a really interesting question then. Do you think like to really appreciate and enjoy Disney, you need to have had that childhood that was rooted in those films? Or do you think that someone who's had very little exposure to Disney movies could go and really enjoy it in the same way? So my theory is no, kind of. I mean, I know my partner, like he has no desire to go to Disney because he barely watched any growing up. Like he also only kind of liked Lion King and Mulan like I don't think he even knows you know any of like the like he couldn't even tell you other characters right in like the in the other Disney movies and yeah he has like zero desire to go um and I feel like you also right is like that's a good example where you barely grew up on it and so you kind of also don't have an inclination to go 
Because I feel like all my friends who are like Disney super fans, like loved going as kids and they still go now. So I feel like it's also like a big part of, yeah, both their childhood, but also just, oh, and we go back and make new memories, even though I'd argue, I don't know what <laughs> what's new about that. <laughs> but I think it is a source of comfort and like reassurance. I guess it is like, I mean, be very expensive, but it's like going back to the family cottage, right? Like it must be this kind of yeah, or even like of, going going back to an all inclusive resort. Like people right. like that because they know what to expect. Every day will be the same. It's mm-hmm. just a very safe space. Yeah, and like you know, actually, yeah, like what you said, every day will be the same, and also like not much will change. Like even though obviously you know, they'll add new rides and things like that. But the experience you always know will be, you know, guaranteed happy and, you know, clean and fun and guaranteed happy. Yeah. What if you have a screaming baby? (laughs) Are those parents guaranteed happy? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I know I wouldn't be. Why would you bring a screaming baby? Well, I don't know. People bring their babies. I've seen on Instagram. Maybe I'll reach out to one of those influencers I follow. I think there's a them. whole Instagram account dedicated to hot dads at Disney. Oh, we can find it later. No. All right, so let's talk about how exclusive Disney is. Because, like, I'll admit, I remember asking my parents if we could go to Disney, and my parents were like, nope. And I was like, but why? And they were like, too expensive. And this is coming from, like, a very middle-class white family. It really makes me wonder about, like, people in America who don't have means even comparative to like what I had growing up it must feel like this kind of like beacon of privilege to be able to go to Disneyland or Disney World yeah for sure I remember like really realizing how like very privileged and lucky I was to have gone both right to Disneyland and Disney World Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I didn't really realize how privileged I was growing up um until yeah until I got older where people were like oh my god like that's the dream or like I'm gonna save up and go to Disney right and it was like oh wow yeah um and I even realize now that when my family went to Disneyland in um in California that we also didn't stay like we stayed on the outskirts of the park like we didn't stay inside the park um because I'm guessing it was too expensive for like a family of five Mm -hmm. but yeah I remember we kind of stayed off in this like little motel right kind of like outside and we just like eat McDonald's before going into the park <laughs> because yeah, the food was really expensive too. Like it really was a big deal to like get a pass for the family. Um, I do remember Disney World um, being a bit. I do remember using my babysitting money to go <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was seventeen. Um, but it's still it's still pricey though. Like it really is. It's a treat. Like it definitely isn't like a casual. You know, okay, let's go for a weekend. Um, yeah, it really it does represent this kind of, yeah, it really does represent this kind of treat that not everybody can, you know, has, has access to. Um, and then the park itself, even once you're in there, the park itself is so expensive and mm-hmm. everything, you know, revolves around still like paying and yeah. yeah. So in this case, money does buy happiness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I am in a lot of like travel forums and I see people posting saying I'm saving $10,000 to go on a Disney vacation. Like, but they're going to like spend the entire week in a hotel. Right. Like, I think isn't staying at like Cinderella's castle, like literally, you know, like yeah, yeah, ungodly amounts of money. Yeah. Um, You could definitely like live large there and spend, yeah, easily thousands. Like I remember, I, I do remember our like, budget options um 
in high school were just like we were like okay let's choose yeah yeah the like little motels inside disney so that's a big deal for us but definitely <laughs> they were like on the outskirts of like of the park and we had to take the shuttle right like everywhere to get to yeah. the actual you know rides yeah um it makes me think of this movie that came out in 2017 called the florida project um which like it's not a perfect movie but it's an interesting snapshot of life outside the parks like nearby um so it's based on is disney world in florida yes is that disney yeah. world yeah so it, it like the movie focuses on a young girl who's growing up in a motel just down the road from disney um and that's sort of like the undertone message of the film is that like yeah people are coming here with money and they don't want to see the reality of like florida and how mm-hmm. people are living here they just like enter this bubble of happiness Yeah, it's like literally right in front of you, but you're choosing to ignore it. Like, I think that's Mm -hmm. a big part of it. And and it's funny, too, because I I feel like it's also part of like, so it's like refusing to look at, you know, reality and like the ugly parts of the world. And it's also like weirdly refusing to grow up and like be responsible and like hold yourself accountable for like, for, for, you know, looking at these things. I I feel like that is part of it. Uh, Maybe I'm going to lose all my friends. (laughs) Who like Disney, (laughs) but like, but we've talked about how we've even told our friends, right, who are Disney fanatics, kind of, you know, oh, but it's so, you know, capitalist, blah, blah, blah. And they go, yeah, but (laughs) it's almost like, again, they're like, stop, stop. (laughs) Like, we know they know, but. I mean, and I'll sound really elitist for saying this, like, obviously, the, the amount that I've traveled comes from a very privileged place, but I just don't, I cannot grasp why you would fly to Japan to go to Disney instead of like explore Japan yeah because I I know mm -hmm. I know people do this and it just blows my mind like why wouldn't you want to actually experience a real culture and a real part of the world that like has so much to offer you in learning and like experience and happiness really it like blows my mind yeah I feel like because yeah I feel like going to any kind of amusement park like to me again it's just a very like you know exactly what you're going to get. I mean, I mean, which is why I think people like it. But to me, yeah, I would not go to an amusement park while traveling because it's such a, it's like, okay, well, I can enjoy this anywhere. And if it's just a roller coaster, <laughs> like I, I'll do that back home. I mean, maybe I'm also the wrong person because I, I don't like rides that much. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so, yeah. but yeah, I'd be really surprised though how, yeah, and like like Japan itineraries, like I was looking some up and people would be like, definitely, you know, four days at least for for Tokyo Disney. And I'd be like, oh my, what? Like, I mean, and that's really expensive. But also I just remember being like, oh, but that's not really Japan. Like, it's kind of like this, again, it's a weird little bubble. It's not, it's not part of the world. Like, it's really its own, its own bubble. And this is like, this is something I have to remind myself of often, actually, is that like some people just aren't, obsessed with traveling like I am. I mean I get that some people just don't have the same inclination like aren't interested like they'll take a safe experience at Disney over like having to push themselves like push their limits to experience something like truly new and something that might actually be challenging I just have I don't know it's hard for me to understand that's a really good point though I I should remember that too, because I I do have friends, right, who are a bit, um, like they're more newbies to traveling and also they just don't like traveling, but they love going to Disney. And I think, 
yeah. obviously like to each their own but it really is like telling that how much they must love it if they don't even like going on planes right or you know booking yeah. a hotel but then they put all of you know they save up and they put their heart and soul right into this yeah. Disney trip and it really is like oh okay I mean I do that for other countries but yeah <laughs> so it really is like okay I guess I can you know I can extend that feeling yeah. to to this I guess the only thing I have to say really though is you're giving all your money to Disney. Give it to give it to Cambodia. <laughs> that, that's true too. And it's like and it's not even apparently it isn't even going to the employee. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> yeah. So no, I agree with that too. It, it feels better kind of supporting like local economies than the man. <laughs> But with that said, I would love to hear from some of you guys, like people listening. If you love Disney and like want to challenge us on this, or if you if you completely agree but like have your own reasons, we want to hear them. So email us. Our email is hello at alpacamybags.ca. So thanks for listening to part one. Um, in part two, we're going to talk all about behind the scenes of Disney. Um, So I did some deep, deep digging on the internet and I found some stories from Disney employees, or should I say cast members, past and present. Um, In the meantime, please subscribe and review to keep this podcast going. Okay? Tell us what you think. Okay, catch you on the flip side. What do you think about animatronics? Annie, animatronics. What would you think of an animatronic cat?